Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this week to listen to a little bit of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Every so often, I will share with you a reflection from the war years, uh, again, World War II. And uh, I'm not saying that we're in World War III at this time, but I think sometimes people say they feel like they're living through a war. And I think sometimes we worry about the future and worry about where is God in all of this craziness. And so I thought I would pull out from the archives a reflection that Archbishop Sheen gave in the year 1942. And uh, it's titled, Trust in God's Plan. And I think we have to listen to his words intently today, uh, because I think a lot of us are always saying, what is the answer? But the answer is trusting in God's plan. He allows some of these things to happen, uh, his permissive will, we like to say. Uh, but still, it's always reassuring to hear these good words from Archbishop Sheen and um who better to teach us than someone who has been through uh, two world wars. Of course, he uh, lived through the First World War and, of course, was ordained in 1919 and then went to Europe to study in the early 20s. Uh, so, of course, he learned other languages, but learned uh, from the Europeans about the effects of the war and, of course, studied communism and uh, many of the other isms that uh, still are here today. And so uh, Fulton Sheen gives us the remedy uh, for these isms and many of his talks. And so, uh, again, we're going to share that with you today. And we'll also share a catechism lesson where he'll talk about communism and the church and, uh, again, give us some good reassurances uh, to know that we can win these battles and that there is an answer to even the communist of today. So uh, please stay tuned. And so may I invite you now just to sit back and relax and enjoy Archbishop Sheen as he teaches us about trusting in God's plan. Friends, the mere fact that we ask the question, why does God permit this war? is in itself an indication of want of trust, either in the wisdom or the goodness of God. How explain this want of trust? Generally, it is due to a refusal to admit, first, the possibility that God knows more than I and is better than I, and secondly, that my dignity is not lowered 
by submitting myself to his wisdom and his goodness, even when they go against me. The ultimate manifestation of pride is self-deification, setting oneself up as God. That is why the intellectually proud man will attempt to convince you of his omniscience. He steals the mantle of God's wisdom and drapes it about his own shoulders. His favorite trick in conversation is to make you think he knows everything. The result is that today we have information, but not wisdom. Information is uncorrelated bits of knowledge, which, like a broken egg, can never be composed into a complete philosophy of life. Wisdom, on the contrary, is a knowledge of truth, human and divine. Information and quiz programs have indoctrinated us into believing that the man who knows the colors of three beards mentioned in Hamlet is wise, and that if you do not know similar patches of information, you really ought to dissolve into an emotional crumble. True wisdom, on the contrary, correlates information into causes and equips itself to answer such questions as, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? And where are we going? A little child who knows the first page of the catechism which sums up the wisdom of Aristotle and the best thinking of Western culture, knows more than all those university professors whose define religion, as an Ohio professor does, as the projection into the roaring loom of time of a unified complex of psychical values, whatever that means. The salvation of modern man lies not in the pride of what he knows, but in humility concerning how little he knows. His omniscience must give way to nescience. Instead of feeling he knows everything, he must come a little closer to the truth that he really knows nothing. His belief that he knows all must surrender to the humiliating truth that someone is wiser than he. For if a man knows all, how can God teach him anything? If there is no law above him, how can he ever be wrong? If the mind is filled with self, how fill it with the wisdom of God? Not until we become humble can there be trust. For an illustration of this, turn to the book of Job. There was once a man in the land of Hus, whose name was Job. And that man was simple and upright, fearing God and avoiding evil. As the story has unfolded, Jacob was, Job rather, was gradually divested of all the things that clothe the spirit of a man those things on which a man leans for help and strength. First he lost his wealth, and then he lost his children, seven sons and three daughters. Next his health, then the love and consolation of his wife, 
And Job's only reflection was, if we have received good things at the hands of God, why should we not receive evil? We see now the naked spirit of the man. There were only two things that were left. God and himself. God he never denied. Himself he could not escape. But between God and himself there seemed to be no place of meeting, no reconciliation, for here was a man who was suffering, but not because he had done any wrong. And Job begins to ask questions. Why did I not die in the womb? Why received upon the knees? Why suckled at the breasts? Why is light given to him that is in misery and life to them that are in bitterness of soul? And there came to Job and he asked these questions a comforter whose name was Elihu, who talked like a university professor who never understood his philosophy well enough to tell it in simple language. And he began a long speech on the justice and the power of God. Never before in the history of the world was any speech cut short more abruptly. For it was not man but God who broke in upon the intellectual droolings of that man and out of the whirlwind God asked, Who is this? that wrappeth up sentences in unskillful words. How would you feel if you sat alongside of the bed of a sick friend, offering him consolation out of the depths of your great wisdom, and then have God come along and cut short your consolation in your words by asking a question like that? But now that God appears on the scene... Should we not expect an answer to those questions which Job asked? Certainly if a Broadway dramatist were putting on this play, he would have God step onto the stage, answer all of the questions of Job, solve all the problems of evil, or else ring up a cash register and give away a gold mine. Everything in the universe would click. There would be no loose edges, we would know all when we left the theater. But the God of heaven's way does not do things like the God of Broadway. When the true God appeared on the stage, what does he do? Here was the supreme expert on the supreme quiz program. Information, please. And God is here to give it. But lo and behold, instead of answering the questions of Job, God begins to ask Job questions. Instead of giving information, he dispensed wisdom, and this is how God began. 
Gird up thy loins like a man, Job, and I will ask thee, answer thou me, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if thou hast understanding, upon what are its bases grounded? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as issuing out of a womb? Have the gates of death been opened to thee? And hast thou seen its stocks and doors? Where is the way where light dwelleth? And where is the place of darkness? Didst thou know thou wouldst be born? And dost thou know the number of thy days? Hast thou entered into the storehouses of the snow? Or hast thou beheld the treasures of the hail? Who is the father of rain? Who begot the drops of dew? Out of whose womb came the ice? And the frost from heaven, who hath gendered it? Shalt thou be able to join together the shining stars, the Pleiades? Or canst thou stop the turning about of the Arcturus? Canst thou bring forth the day star in its time and make the evening star to rise upon the children of earth? Who hath put wisdom in the heart of man? Or who gave the cock understanding? Will the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest in high places? Shall he that contendeth with God be so easily silenced? Surely he that reproveth God ought to answer him. That was the speech of God. And in that whole speech of God, no reference was made to the suffering of Job. No explanation was offered for anything that had transpired. But God did one thing. He brought Job face to face with the universe in which he lived. Asked him if he were equal to creating it, to governing it even to the fall of a sparrow and made him see that he was a very small part of a vast and mighty whole. And when God finished asking Job questions, Job realized that the questions of God were more satisfying than the answers of man, that the true nations into whose abyss he was driven was really the beginning of wisdom. Job saw now that he had been asking only one question, how could his individual, personal problem be solved? And God's answer was that his question was but one of a million others. And until he could understand the answer to those million questions, he never could understand the answer to that one. And like Job... 
None of us can understand how our own individual problems fit into the great general plan of God. It is easy for us to fall into the error of thinking that the laws of the universe should be suspended or interrupted every time a good man gets in trouble. If the business of religion was merely to get the religious out of trouble, religion would cease to be religion. It would become a kind of insurance policy, which would be the end of religion for the simple reason that it would be faithless. A mouse that crawls into a grand piano and has its gnawing of the keys disturbed by a great artist entertaining an audience with a Mozart or a Chopin must in its own puny little brain think that the universe is without a plan. And the spider which weaves its web on the girder of a great steel beam that is lifted into a bridge cannot possibly understand how its own little plan for catching flies must give way to the engineer's greater plan of transportation. Tapestries are woven not from the front, but from the back, and it is only when the last thread is drawn that we see the completed design. As Father Tab put it, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I may but choose the colors. He worketh skillfully. Full oft he chooses sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper. And I, the underside. We live in the midst of evil days, it is true. But it is not because God is not good. It is because the world has not been good. About one-third of the civilized world today has crucified him. Another third has abandoned him. And the other third, while living good lives as individuals has not yet had enough influence to affect the political, economic, and moral life in which they live. And this war, let us be sure about it, is not for freedom any more than the last war was for democracy. It is for something more than that. It is rather a titanic struggle to decide whether in the next few centuries... We shall live by the moral law rooted in God or in the law of force rooted in Satan. Whether we know it or not, we are fighting for a moral order. Not just because we willed it in God, but because our enemies, thank God, have forced us into that position. It may take some time before we realize the greatness of our cause. We may first have to lose something of what we have gained. But let it not be said that while unconsciously fighting for a morality rooted in God, 
we consciously abandon trust in God, who alone can save. Does this make the plea for a daily holy hour? Were Jews and Protestants and Catholics any clearer? Do you not see that unless the Jews and the Protestants, according to the light of their conscience, while praying for the truth, and the Catholics in the fullness of their faith and the real presence of our Lord on the altar, unless they make public daily profession of their trust in God, we as a nation may lose the moral objective that justifies this war. And we may even lose the God who gave us peace. And anyone who would like a holy hour book of meditations to assist him in this hour of meditations each day may write for it and we will gladly send it to him. Last week I received about 70 sheets of paper on which there were written tens of thousands of little crosses or dashes, each of which indicated a prayer to Our Lady, Queen of Peace. They were sent to me by the third and fourth grade children of St. Peter's School in Delano, Minnesota. These little children are the spiritual MacArthur's of America. The moral arsenals from which our country will draw its best citizens in years to come. And as adults, our duty is greater. And greater because guns and bullets alone will not win this war. We need them, certainly. But we need more a realization that some of our enemies have the devil on their side. And man is no match for the devil. That is why we will either return to God or we will perish. Lose not then your trust in God. He has not failed. This is a time of probation. When you go to a mystery play in the theater, do you walk out in the first act because one of the good characters is killed or because evil is momentarily victorious? Do you judge the play by the first few lines? If you believe the dramatist has a plot, why do you not give God credit for having a plot? Perhaps this war is so far only in the first scene of the first act. As in it we witness the bitter fruits of our complacency and the onward march of our enemies. We may yet have to sit through a few more acts before we become wise like the prodigal or before we become humble. Patience, then. Patience. He that would have cake out of wheat must tarry the grinding. What wound ever healed except by degrees. And our world is wounded. If you must, 
Give up your faith in everything else. In credit, in mass production and in wealth. But surrender not your faith in him alone who can save. Say then to your soul, My soul, sit then a patient looker-on. Judge not the play before the play is done. The plot hath many changes. Every day speaks a new scene. The last act crowns the play. Radio Maria listeners, we take pride in giving you the very best in Catholic radio programming here on Radio Maria Canada. This month, we are having our annual Marathon. Our goal this year is $10,000 to ensure Radio Maria continues and expands their outreach around the world. The world is hungry for hope, and we at Radio Maria would like to encourage you to donate whatever you can by either visiting our website at www.radiomaria.ca slash donate or contacting our office at 416-245-7117 or sending your donation by mail or by e-transfer to donations at radiomaria.ca. We would like to thank all our listeners for supporting Radio Maria and helping us reach our goal of $10,000 to ensure that Radio Maria continues to remain on air, providing the best in Catholic radio today. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, and I hope you enjoyed that reflection from 1942, where Archbishop Sheen talks about trusting in God's plan. He mentioned a great deal about the Holy Hour, and uh, again, when you listen to Archbishop Sheen long enough, you know that he never misses an opportunity to share the importance of praying an hour each day. And it doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Protestant, or Jew, he would still charge us with that great responsibility of doing our part, our part in praying for world peace, praying for peace in our families. And so, again, there is this burden that uh, we need to take on, uh, this burden of prayer to do our part. And the Holy Hour is a great blessing to many of our listeners. Um, I know many of you who are tuning in uh, practice the Holy Hour. You uh, spend time each day uh, spending uh, time before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And I know many of you carve out an hour in your busy schedule to spend time with the Lord, uh, meditating on the Scripture and um, just being in His presence. So, um, again, some people actually have shared with me that they 
break up their holy hour into four 15-minute segments uh, as best they can. So uh, it doesn't matter how you do the holy hour. It's that you do the holy hour. <laughs> so uh, again, there's that saying, uh, fail to plan, then plan to fail. Well, uh, you can plan to succeed. You have to sometimes schedule in your prayer time, but it can be done. And and I, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Archbishop Sheen's Holy Hour Prayer Book. It's been republished. Um, we had uh, the opportunity to uh, reprint this beautiful book from 1942. It's uh, available on Amazon. And you just uh, type in Archbishop Sheen's Holy Hour Book. Um, again, you'll come up, you'll see a beautiful picture of a monstrance on the altar in Peoria. Uh, again, it's available in Australia, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, the United States, uh, Amazon's everywhere. And uh, this little Holy Hour prayer book by Fulton Sheen has been on the bestsellers list for about two and a half years now. Uh, continues to be one of the best-selling little prayer books, and it's uh, well-priced, it's not that expensive, and yet it contains so much. So go on to Amazon, look up the Holy Hour Prayer Book by Fulton Sheen, and uh, give it a buy and uh, have it in your own personal collection, and you'll be glad you did. Uh, there's just beautiful meditations in there. Uh, Fulton Sheen gives us 10 good reasons to make a Holy Hour, and much, much more. So uh, he gave it away in the tens of thousands of uh, copies in the 40s. And of course, uh, it's not free today, but still, you can buy it at a good price on Amazon. So uh, no matter where you are in the world, you'll find the Holy Hour Prayer Book by Fulton Sheen. All right, it's time for our catechism lesson. And so I will hand the microphone over to Archbishop Sheen as he gives us a lesson on communism and the church. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. Now there actually is such a thing in the world as authoritarianism. It is communism. What is the essence of authoritarianism? Well, I would say it was threefold. First, it subjects the mind to dogmas. Two, it makes fear the basis of obedience. Three, it destroys freedom of thought. Now, the church has none of these qualities. It could not have them. Because remember that our blessed Lord lived in the midst of authoritarianism. The people among whom he moved were under the power of the Romans. Furthermore, all of the Pharisees were authoritarian. So when, therefore, our blessed Lord founded his church, naturally, he made it a bulwark against all forms of authoritarianism. Notice how he even contrasted his church and what would be likened to communism. He said, you know that among the Gentiles, those who bear rule, lord it over them, and great men vaunt their power over them. But with you, it must be otherwise. 
and whoever has a mind to be first among you must be your slave. Now, how did our Lord save us in his church from authoritarianism? We're going to contrast here the three characteristics of communism with three characteristics of the church. First, our blessed Lord established a church in which, one, we do not obey a system, but a person. Two, in the church, the basis of our obedience is not fear, but love. And thirdly, in the church, freedom of thought is saved by reverence for the truth. Now let's take these up one by one. First of all, dogmas. In communism and in any other form of authoritarianism, one has to submit to a system, that is to say, a very complicated network of assumptions, codes and directives and orders, which are very often abstract, such as, for example, the dialectical materialism of communism, the theory of class conflict, and the labor theory of value. But as Catholics, we do not subscribe to a system of dogmas. We begin with a person. The person of our Lord continued in his mystical body, the church. What is faith? Faith is the meeting of two personalities. You and our Lord. There is no adhesion to an abstract dogma, but rather a communion with a person who can neither deceive nor be deceived. The authoritarian starts with a party line. We start with our Lord, the Son of the living God, who said, I am the truth. I am the truth. In other words, truth was identified with his personality. Remember when you were a child? What did you consider your home? Just a sum of commands given by either your mother or your father? It was more than that, was it not? It was the love of their personalities. Our faith then is first and foremost in Christ, who lives in his mystical body, the church. It is only secondarily in the explicit beliefs. If our blessed Lord did not reveal them, we would not believe them. If we lost him, we would lose our beliefs. He comes first. Everything else is secondary. There is no doctrine, no moral, no dogma, no liturgy, no belief apart from him. He is the object of faith. Not a dogma. For example, there is a kind of a dogma we might call it that, that when a young man loves a young woman, he should give her a ring when he becomes engaged to her. 
But what is primary to that custom and that dogma that he should give a ring? Is it not a love of her person? So with us. To a Catholic, there's nothing credible in the church apart from Christ who lives in it. Why, if we did not believe that our Lord was God, if we said that he was only a good man, we would never believe in the Eucharist or the Trinity. If we believe that our Lord was just simply a human being who perished in the dust, we would not believe in the forgiveness of sins. We know that our blessed Lord once taught, governed, and sanctified through a physical body which he took from his mother, and now we know that he continues to teach and to govern and to sanctify in the mystical body which he took from the womb of humanity. His first body was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. His mystical body was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Therefore, we accept every single word of his, not just what his secretaries wrote, but we receive his living word, living through the centuries. You've heard it said, I want no church standing between me and Christ. There is no church standing between us and Christ. The church is Christ. Why he no more stands between, or rather the church no more stands between him and us, for example, than my body stands between me and my invisible mind. The church is what St. Augustine called the totus Christus, the whole Christ, and therefore is truth living through the ages. Oh, thank God for your faith, your faith in the person of Christ, who is the eternal contemporary. Now that brings us to the other charge that is made, namely that if you belong to the church, you are subject to fear. It is true that in every single system of authoritarianism, fear is the basis of obedience. But because we start with the person of Christ, the basis of our obedience is not fear. It is love. You cannot love dialectical materialism, but you can love a person. And between our Lord and us, there's a bond of love. And these two are inseparable. That is why our Lord did not communicate to Peter the power of ruling and governing his church until St. Peter told our Lord three times that he loved him. The power to command in the church comes only from obedience to Christ. Therefore, the submission that we as Catholics make to the church is something like the submission that we make well, to one of our most devoted friends. It's like the obedience of a son to a loving father. 
We do not feel any distance between our Lord and us. As a pupil becomes more and more attached to his teacher, the more he absorbs the truths of the teacher, so too we become more and more united to Christ, the more we love him, and also the more of his truth that we absorb. The more we know our Lord, the more we obey the truth manifested through his church, the less we fear. That is why scripture says, perfect love casteth out fear. The more his truth is ours, the more we love him. And when we fall away from the faith, God forbid. It is not like falling away from oh, the love of a book or a song or a trinket. It's falling from a friendship. It's falling from love. I really cannot imagine anything more cold and more enslaving more paralyzing to human reason, more destructive of freedom than that thing to which millions of people are prostrating themselves every day, namely the terrible anonymous authority of they. They say they are wearing green this year. They say that Catholics adore Mary. They say that the hair will be worn shorter this year. They say that Freud is the thing. Who are they? Countless slaves and puppets are bowing down daily before that invisible, tyrannical myth of they. No wonder dictatorships arose to personalize that terrible slavery. These millions will not accept the authority of Christ who rose from the dead, who continues to live in the church. We know whom we obey. They do not know whom they are obeying. They cannot point to the persons or to the object behind that terrible anonymous they. But thank God we know. We obey our Lord in the church. The very negative proof of the fact that it is love that binds us, is in the thousands and thousands of letters that I have received in the course of years from persons who have fallen away from the church or who are outside of it because they entered into a second or a third invalid marriage. All of these letters express invariably a great unhappiness on the inside, a boredom, an ennui, a disgust, and an anxiety, not because they have broken a law, but because they have broken a bond of friendship with the Sacred Heart. Their loneliness also bears witness to the truth that when there is no person to love, 
There's no certainty. There's only subjection. When there's a love of Christ, then love begins to believe everything. And since no one can ever surpass the love that Christ showed for us in redeeming us and founding his mystical body, the church, there can be no greater certitude in the world. And that's the only kind of love that can save us from authoritarianism with its fear. Make us really loving creatures bound together in the tendrils of affection to him who loved us even to a point of death. Now that brings us to the third point. It is sometimes said that the church destroys freedom of thought. And almost annihilates reason. Actually, it is the contrary that is true. Authoritarianism destroys real freedom of thought. You see, you must always make a distinction between freedom from thought and freedom of thought. The devil has pretty much convinced the world that if you accept God's truth, you are not free. In fact, if you accept any truth, you are destroying your reason. He has very much convinced many souls in the world that any limitation that is put upon a reason is the destruction of that reason. For example, in the garden, he suggested to our first parents that if they did not know evil, that God in some way was destroying their freedom. So he asked, why did God command you? For him, you really are not free until you know evil. In so many words, the devil was telling our first parents, the purpose of God is to prevent free inquiry. He wants to keep the human race in ignorance. Do not be fooled. God is an old fuddy-duddy. He is a reactionary. He does not want you to know evil. Be liberal. Those are the words of Satan. So God is made to appear as the enemy of truth, in just the same way that a father who refuses to let a son five-year-old son have a shotgun is said by the son to be denying freedom. So to the devil to continue to be loyal to one wife or to a country or to truth is a mark of slavery and a want of freedom. Let us analyze that assumption. 
Is it true that the more you subscribe to divine truth, the less free you become? Well, before I went to school, I was free to believe, for example, that Shakespeare was born in 1224. But finally, I was told that Shakespeare was not born in 1224. He was born in 1564. I'm saying that only from memory. I hope that I'm right. But at any rate, I was given an exact date. I found out that education in truth was really restricting my freedom to fall into error. Before I went to school, I also thought that H2O were really the initials of a spy. And then I fell into the hands of a reactionary teacher. He stopped all of my liberalism. Do you know what he told me H2O meant? He said it was the symbol for water. And thus, the more I studied, the less free I became to know error. What the world forgets, really, is that freedom is a world that is very much abused. We want to be free from something only for the sake of something. For example, I want to be free from communism in order to perfect my soul. I want to be free from hunger in order to develop the body that God gave me. I want also to be free from fear in order to be free for love. You notice that freedom from something is always a freedom for something. What's the use of being free from anything unless we know the purpose of freedom? I heard once of a rich man who went up to a taxi driver and he said to the taxi driver, are you free? The taxi driver said, yes, I'm free. And the rich man left shouting, hurrah for freedom. It was nonsense. Simply because the only reason of being free from something is to be free for something. Freedom, therefore, is not liberation from the truth. It is rather the acceptance of a truth. When are you really most free? When you know the truth about anything. For example, you are free to draw a triangle on condition that you give it three sides and not 33. You are free to draw a giraffe if you draw it with a long neck. If you do not obey the truth and the nature of a giraffe and you give it a short neck, well, you find that you're not free to draw a giraffe. You are free to drive your automobile in traffic on condition that you obey the traffic laws. You are free in the law. You are free in truth. 
You are free to pilot a plane on condition that you respect the law of gravitation and you acknowledge the truths of aviation. Now that's what our blessed Lord meant when he said, the truth will make you free. Now our truth, therefore, in the church is a truth that has come down to us from Christ. And it is a truth that really is so very, very noble that when we begin to wander away from it, we lose our way. There's a tremendous satisfaction in having a map. And that is what the truth of Christ is like in the church. We may get off the road. We may get off it by sin. We may get off it by error. But as long as we got that map, we can get back on the road. There are indeed some people, once they get off the road, they tear up the map. That's a still greater tragedy. The church, too, really is very wise because it always teaches us both sides of a question. I taught philosophy in a university for 25 years. And I noticed that anyone and everyone who taught in the university always knew both sides of a question. For example, everyone in the Catholic university where I taught, everyone knew the opinions of the modern world in any given subject. Philosophy, for example, we knew uh, Marx and Sartre and Heidegger, Jaspers and Freud and the like. But do you think that the teachers in secular universities knew anything about Christian thought? They know only one side of the question, not both. Look at the papal encyclical on communism. Communists once told me that the clearest and finest explanation of communism that he ever read was in the Holy Father's encyclical on communism. He gave both sides of the question. Look at that great work of philosophy and theology called the Summa Theologic of St. Thomas. Every single question that great mind teaches begins with a doubt and a difficulty. Then he answers it. We know both sides of the question those outside the church all know only one side. And frequently, it's the wrong side. Our freedom, therefore, is not an independence of truth, but rather dependence in love. That's the joy of being a Catholic. Perhaps I can make it clear with this analogy. On an island in the sea, there were children. Around the island were great high walls. Inside of those walls on the island, children sang and danced and played. One day some men came in a rowboat to that island. They were reformers. And they said to the children, Who put up those walls? 
Someone is restraining your freedom. Tear them down. And the children tore them down. Now, if you go back, you will find all of the children huddled together in the center of the island, afraid to play, afraid to sing, afraid to dance, afraid of falling into the sea. War is truth. And as Christ in the church said, if the Son of Man makes you free, you are free indeed. Well, my dear friends, I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, and I hope you enjoyed these reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. If you'd like to hear more of the Archbishop, uh, again, please visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com. And we set up the website back in the year 2012. Uh, there was an overwhelming response, uh, people just wanting to watch Archbishop Sheen's old television programs, his many lectures, and uh, people wanted to listen to his talks. And so uh, there is an opportunity for you, for you to download his talks for free. Uh, we have archives of over 10 years of our programs that we've had on the air uh, on radio stations across the world. Uh, many of you are listening in Australia or the Philippines or the United States of America or Canada or the United Kingdom. Uh, Fulton Sheen, I think, is everywhere. And uh, I tell you, uh, we are blessed to hear his recordings today, but you can hear them all at the website bishopsheentoday.com. Now, I know that uh, many of you are readers and you enjoy uh, good books. And so uh, on the website bishopsheentoday.com, we list the 66 books that Archbishop Sheen wrote and we try to provide you with links where you can purchase those books. I mentioned earlier about the Holy Hour prayer book that's available on Amazon. And again, it continues to be a best-selling book. Um, again, it's very inexpensive. It's a nice size, a beautiful cover, and yet it has some beautiful meditations in that book. So pick up a copy of the book at your earliest convenience. You'll be glad you did. My dear friends, I pray that you'll have a great week. Until the next time we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.